0: This is The Guardian. Just a warning, there is some strong language in this episode. I'm Grace Dent and this is Comfort Eating from The Guardian. A podcast where we pay homage to the lesser celebrated foods in life. Because even as a restaurant critic, I believe the food that matters most is often that snack you cobble together when you're curled up on the sofa. Each week, I ask my guest to lift the lid on what comfort foods have seen them through their lives. Because you can tell a lot about a person from what they eat behind closed doors.
1: Finding your perfect home was hard.
0: Hello, friends. You join me as I am fueling up for a chat with the comedian Fern Brady. I'm having a snack uh, which is inspired by my little brother. I'm having some biscuits with blue, very stinky blue cheese. Drizzled with hot sauce. This is what my brother always orders to some shock from the waiting staff in a pizza place whenever we go out. So, yeah, stinky blue cheese on a margarita with plenty of hot sauce and jalapenos. I always call it the big dog. For over 10 years, Fern Brady has been making people laugh for money on British comedy classics such as Live at the Apollo, 8 Out of 10 Cats and her solo show Power and Chaos, which was made into a BBC special. Whether you saw the show on TV or in the flesh, you'll know that Fern doesn't care much for the status quo or what many people might find offensive or embarrassing. On her podcast, Wheel of Misfortune, she's not shy when it comes to sharing a pretty honest story. And she's been speaking about being diagnosed later in life with autism spectrum disorder, which happened only this year when Fern was 34 years old. From what I know, Fern's life has taken more twists and turns than most. So I'm keen to hear about that and, crucially, the snacks that have sustained her along the way. Big drug never lets you down. Fern Brady, welcome
2: to Comfort Eating. Thank
0: you so much for having me. It's really funny to
2: sit across from you because I've only ever seen you.
0: It's I'm weird to sit across
2: from you, because I remember seeing you on Charlie Brooker or something. And I, I'd never seen, like, a normal person working in the media, really, because you're not po- posh, are you? No. Just normal. I try to be posh. But, I mean, it, it was it, it was good because they're just... I wanted to be a journalist before I did stand-up, and there just weren't any normal people in journalism. So from watching you stand-up, you strike me as a woman that takes
0: no prisoners... Uh, when it comes to food. Have you brought a delicious, comfort-eating snack?
2: Yes, I on.
0: Reveal the snack. There doesn't seem to be any kind of heat being applied to
2: anything. What is this? It's a slice of plain white bread.
0: (laughs) I have never seen anybody open a loaf of bread by just opening, the just tearing the top of the wrapper and then <laughs> handing it over going that's not how we do bread fern <laughs> <laughs> that's not- <laughs> okay so you want me to take a slice I
2: won't take the top what do you, yeah. ca- what
0: do you call the, um, the, the top end of it? piece do you call it the
2: end yeah I don't know why people avoid eating it because I love every part of the bread do you want the end though uh, yeah I would call that the crust you seem to have just gone straight in and you're, just, <laughs> you're just
0: eating the bread is this it yeah <laughs> This isn't right. Yeah, the
2: producers (laughs) when they were doing when they did the research chat with me, they didn't seem to understand that I just want to eat plain bread, plain white
0: bread, which media media people are very distrustful of. I don't think media people ever eat white bread, but it's like cake, man. It's just junk. I'm gonna just go out there. Why not any butter or margarine on it? Oh, because
2: I grew up eating really healthily. And there wasn't any, there wasn't like any sweets or anything in the house. So um, whenever, my one form of comfort eating was I would go into the kitchen and take two slices of bread and go back to my bedroom with a book and just eat this plain bread. I
0: think though that even though it feels weird, there's something quite compelling about this that you kind of can't stop once you start with this plain bread. It is sweet Yeah, it is It's kind of plasticky.
2: Yeah. There's something
0: kind of calming about it. Yeah. In your show, Power and Chaos, you described young Fern as having milk bottle glasses, a mullet and a moustache.
2: Tell me more about what sort of kid you were. A loner and... um I would like boss other children around. Uh, I just like reading a lot. And uh, I mean, in primary school, people put up with the thing of me getting them to play games. But then when you're in high school and you're still like that, it's not really the same. You have to learn how to get on with girls in a different way. And um, because I, I, I've got Asperger well, they don't call it Asperger's autism or whatever. It's like a key thing that when you, a lot of autistic girls, when they make the switch over to secondary school, they have no idea how to socialise with other girls um, because there's so many unspoken cues and we're not aggressive-aggressive, we're passive-aggressive yeah. and uh, they're mean in such subtle ways.
0: So hang on, tell me about the moustache. Like, when did you first touch the moustache? I still have a bit of a moustache, oh, which do, is mad.
2: Because I've had so many things done to my face, injectables and things like that. And yet, oh, yeah. not asked about getting laser surgery. Yeah. Yeah. That would be a step too far. I just look, this like Susan Boyle's from my town, and that is how a lot of us look there. Because it was upsetting when she first got famous, the way the media would describe her with horror. And yeah. you're thinking that's my whole family you're Yeah. Describing. so what would you be doing at home? I had about uh, six hamsters at <laughs> varying times and a lot of them died tragically um,
0: what were your hamsters called?
2: Um, one was called Miss Selfridge because I thought that was a dead classy shop I'd heard of in Edinburgh Edinburgh was like New York even though it was only 20 minutes away that was how fancy it seemed um, <laughs> What was the other one called? Uh, Lady Marmalade. <laughs> it's so shit. Um, so Lady,
0: Lady Marmalade. I can feel
2: my face going bad. After the, um, the famous... uh what was the she? hookers. Yeah. Which I also didn't know because I was like eight.
0: Uh, you grew up in the Scottish town of Bathgate. You've got
2: two little brothers. It's weird hearing proper media people say Bathgate. I basket, Bathgate. Yeah. How, do, how do I say it? No, no, bath, I just mean hearing bath, anyone when, when legitimate. So
0: yeah. Yeah. I'll say it again. You grew up in the Scottish town of Bathgate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you had two little brothers, your mum, who worked at Tesco, yeah. and your dad, who drove trucks. What was the Brady family approach to food?
2: Um, well, I think my dad was quite clueless about food. Um, but my mom is just a really good cook. And my mom used to make focaccia and like have all these different loaves of it rising by the radiators. Wow! And when I say it to my boyfriend now, he's like, "You were middle class. You you were posh growing up, and you're hiding it from me." Um, but I've got to say that's
0: some pretty damning evidence, though. Like focaccia, Honestly. making your own focaccia—that's middle class.
2: I remember one of my brothers wanted to be vegetarian. So then we we would eat quite a lot of vegetarian meals, but just things like this was at the time in Mad Cow and stuff. So, um, we would eat corn, chilies, and she did make traditional Scottish stuff, like she would make Scottish soup, yeah, like vegetable soup or um, a dumpling, which I think the proper name for it's Clouty dumpling, and it's like a big you you might have had yeah. it yeah, uh, yeah yeah
0: Clouty Dumpling's delicious though.
2: she just gave me the family recipe for it and it was like uh, written on the back of something um, and had all these confusing measurements and I made it and she was like oh but our family recipe has got an error because it has like five times the amount of allspice or something yeah. so I grew up thinking dumpling was this incredibly <laughs> spicy uh-huh. cake but it was great when I made it. It took me hours. So did she make like special packed lunches for you for school? Yeah, we had great packed lunches, but I remember feeling so embarrassed of it at the time because we were the only, must have been the only white people in Scotland eating samosas <laughs> way ahead of anyone else. And my mum wasn't weird about food in the way that like a lot of my posh female friends in England, our mum's, kind of raised them to have this semi-anorexia and be really weird about food. But more, my mum was just all about cooking everything from scratch and she used to tell me that kids in our town who went to private school, their parents paid for the school fees by giving them only Tesco value food, which is such Uh, a lie. Oh my God, so you
0: thought that getting comfort food was... Kind of a symbol of not being cared for enough.
2: Well, it's more that my version of comfort food is is different. So there was one time I was at my first boyfriend's house at school, and his family ate atrociously. Like um, uh, we were about to order a pizza for dinner, me and him and our friends, and then my mum phoned up to because she was a bit clingy to get me to come home. And I went, listen, let's put her on speakerphone so we can laugh at her. And I was like, I'm not coming home, mum. I'm having a pizza. And she said, but I'm cooking asparagus. And I was like, well, I'm having pizza. And she said, but it's your favourite vegetable. And I was like, shut up. And I just hung up. But, if, I mean, it fucking was my favourite vegetable. Yeah. Loved it. I'd be fighting with my brothers over those last few spears of asparagus.
0: So, hang on. Was sitting down and having dinner with
2: your family a happy time? No man, well we all sat and ate round a dining room table and mm-hmm. they were like big on, we, we never would have eaten in front of the TV unless someone died or yeah. something mad. I just have all these memories of like terrible arguments mm-hmm. and stuff and, or stony silences and it was very dramatic. Well, I remember funny times as well, but what would we argue about? There was, I did a three-year campaign with them from when I was 13 of not wanting to go to church anymore. And um, I had to ask every Sunday for three years. And then when I eventually got to stop going, my mum said, well, you can stop going, but you'll have a sad and empty life. (laughs) And then, and she doesn't even go to church now. That's the annoying thing. So
0: hang on, what are they? What? Oh, Catholics. They're Catholics. Scottish Catholics
2: can be quite strict. And it's weird because I feel like in England, there's so few Catholics that people don't get how different a way of life it is. Because everyone in... Every Irish Catholic in Scotland, most of us came over at the turn of the century between then and, like... The nineteen forties or fifties, and my region where I'm from is like a perfectly preserved version of nineteen fifties Donegal. Yes, like it, it's just so different to anything down here. What kind of Catholicism
0: was kind of going on in your house? What like what are like the main themes. Well
2: stuff that would be normal that I've since realised isn't is my mum blessing me every time I left the house. Yeah yeah. God bless. Um, God bless. She would do the sign (laughs) of the cross like right up until I was at uni and stuff and I had to say please stop blessing me when I leave the house Um, you would have two types of holy water normal holy water for just every day. We're from Lourdes or somewhere? Yeah, well, no, you had holy water from Lourdes that you kept for if you had the flu or something. And then if you ever lost anything in the house, like the remote control, you'd pray to St Anthony to get it back.
0: But you know, when you're standing at the side of the stage and you're going to go on and do Live at the Apollo, mm. do you not, like, do a little prayer?
2: No, I sing, or um, well, I do one or two things. I'll think of a really mediocre but confident middle class comic, and I'll try and channel that energy. Or I sing Perfect Moment by Martine McCutcheon to calm Is myself. It my moment. Yeah, yeah. I've done that from like my first. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. So you have to <laughs> so do dramatic. something like that. <laughs>
0: And at this time, you are at the local Catholic State Secondary School in Bathgate. Yeah. So
2: how do you feel
0: about being there?
2: Uh, It was like being in prison. (laughs) If you've ever watched that series, Bad Girls, there's always one posh old woman that's like, I shouldn't be here. That was me at secondary school. Because I thought I was like, I remember me and my best friend. (laughs) (laughs) How has this happened? (laughs) Honestly, me and my best friends used to drink um, absinthe because we thought we were like French intellectuals or something. I didn't like going to school, but I was always good at um, exams and stuff. You're clever. uh, Yeah, but I could have done without actually being in school. I don't think I learned very much. Like a lot of my teachers were drunk. My maths (laughs) teacher was illiterate. (laughs) In fact, two of them, they would spell my punishment exercises wrong. And I was going home and saying to my parents, I need to move schools because the people teaching me are half-wits. So when I was 16, I was doing my exams to get into uni and I was obsessed with getting A grades and getting into uni so that I could not live in Bathgate anymore. Um, And then I went mad and got put in this um, CAMS day unit So hang on, is that like an inpatient day mental
0: health? Yeah, it's got a
2: children and adolescent mental health unit. Um, So I used to go to this place during the day instead of school and then I did my exams. Well, I went back to school to do my exams, but I studied for my exams in the unit. So in amongst
0: all this upheaval, emotional upheaval, was there anything nice happening around that time that cheered you up, gave you comfort
2: oh well I had my first uh, boyfriend at school and he was weird as well like he had a pet rock called Leonard um <laughs> yeah. but he, his was the one with a family that had like junk food and he, and they actually this blew my mind because we didn't have a microwave at home because my mum said there were, there were like waves came out of it that were bad for you or something and we would never have had a deep fat fryer. And they had all that stuff in their house. And they even had so much food that they had a separate freezer in their garden shed filled with um uh chicken dippers. Um and he would he said, You can just have a full packet and like put them all in the deep fat fryer and they're yours. So I would eat them all the time. The bit where you put your fruit and vegetables on the bottom of the fridge, that was just filled with chocolate bars and you could eat whatever you wanted from it at any time. I loved going there.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing mint mobile unlimited premium wireless ready to get 30 30 ready to get 30 ready to get 20 20 20 to get 20 20 to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month so give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com finding your perfect home was hard but thanks to burrow furnishing it has never been easier
0: Despite your difficulties as a teen, uh, you got the grades you needed to go to Edinburgh University. You switched courses a couple of times before landing on English. To what extent do you think that uni life lived up to the expectations of what it was going to be like?
2: Oh, well, you were asking if I was unhappy at school. School was bad, but only in in an average uh, kind of way. Edinburgh Uni was horrible, like... Such a culture shock to go from thinking you're the cleverest kid at your school and feeling confident about that to going to somewhere where not only are you not the cleverest, but people treat you as, you've, as if you've just walked out of a cave because you've got a working class accent. It was appalling, like the snobbery there. How did you
0: react to that feeling that you were in a place that
2: didn't really accept you? The way autism works is when you're stressed or uncertain, it can affect your eating. So even though I'm obs- I'm definitely like obsessed with food and restaurants and everything, if I'm very, very distressed, I'll reduce my foods down to one or two things. So I remember Edinburgh Uni, first year I was just eating bagels, just for ages. Like I could only eat bagels or cereal. So you're not reducing
0: calories, you're reducing the amount of different things that you eat.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, it wasn't it wasn't like a weight loss thing. It was more like it becomes overwhelming because you're so overwhelmed by everything else, it becomes overwhelming to also think about what your food is. And we have this thing, I only found out about this this year, because so much of autism is a sensory problem. People think of it as you being rude or being blunt, but that's how it affects neurotypical people. The way it affects us is like fluorescent lighting is horrific or different tastes and textures can affect you. So um, foods like bread and milk are down-regulating foods and they're very calming and soothing, whereas Ah. spicy foods would be up-regulating. So if you're sitting like a zombie in a daze, a spicy food might help you. But if you feel really overwhelmed and all your body's tight with stress, bread will help you. Did you stay at uni then? It took me six years to finish uni because first year... Well, I I dropped out and had to wait to start English Lit the next year. And during that year, I was so stressed. But I didn't even realise how stressed I was that I really cut back on eating and I just ate one Nutri-Grain bar a day and, like, a yoghurt. And I'd sometimes eat cornflakes. And I remember so clearly just eating that for, like, ages. But I don't remember thinking I was losing weight. I just remember suddenly my... I worked in a bookies part-time and my trousers at the bookies were too baggy on me. And then um, everyone at uni started saying that I looked amazing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um,
0: did people treat you differently? When yeah, you the posh
2: girls started being a bit nicer to me. <laughs> <laughs> You're in the gang now. Uh, yeah. So did you have anyone around Edinburgh that you felt like at home with? I started working in strip clubs, because it was either that or drop out of uni. So I went to work in strip clubs and then for the rest of uni, my friends were strippers. And then actually working in stripping, I gained weight because we, the first place I worked in, we had this amazing Italian restaurant next door. So I have really vivid memories of finishing my shift and eating, um, I swear to God, they did like gnocchi carbonara. What? But I'm like, I've not seen that anywhere else.
0: Well, it's an, It's a... I've never seen it. It sounds delicious. Though. It was
2: great, and then cos men were telling me I was beautiful all the time. I, I gained like ten pounds or something in the first couple of months of working there. <laughs> we
0: scared at all going into stripping or did it just feel like a natural thing kind of
2: <laughs> we like, oh, did it feel like a natural progression well from, people, oh, I don't know no, some people like no I was shaking up. I was shaking the first time I had to do a lap dance like well, yeah. I felt like I was going to pass out um, but then it becomes as I mean the conversations are so scripted in there and the scenarios are they never change from night to night and then strippers are really cool um I mean, working in a strip club is always entertaining, especially Scottish strip clubs, man. It was like care in the community with tits. <laughs> like um, the first place I worked in, there was uh, only two regular customers was a guy with a brain injury and a guy that had Down syndrome that would just walk around shouting at everyone and asking if they'd had a good time. <laughs> um, Did
0: you ever have the knocky carbonara and then do a lap dance?
2: Oh, no, no, no. Did you eat any carbs before you went out and got your clothes off? Yes. Um, Oh, this is another... I have so many nice food memories of this time. I'll tell you another thing, is the guy with a brain injury used to buy us all bags of Maltesers and we would all sit watching Channel 5 documentaries together. A lot of it was sitting on the couch watching telly and eating chocolate. Because customers generally, on a weeknight... No one wants a lap dance at like 8pm on a Wednesday, so you just have to wait and wait and wait. So we would just sit um, chatting on the couches in our mad outfits. But what I used to do during the day in terms of eating carbs, I mean, I really got pretty fat when I was stripping, when I think about it, because there's ways of dressing to cover it up. And then once you've got their money, like I don't care if I look fat when I take my clothes off because you have their money then. Um, I love that so I used to live <laughs> above this deli and the woman that ran it was a horrible grumpy bitch but they sold this Jewish bread challah, Hala, Um yeah. and I'd never had it before um, so I used to buy a full loaf of that and then I'd sit in my dressing gown playing online bingo just like eating this loaf of challah and then putting my eyelashes on getting ready to go, go to work
0: you were working to put money towards journalism
2: yeah yeah unpaid journalism
0: work experience you must have really wanted to be a journalist
2: yeah that's why it's so mad i gave gave it up when i got everything i wanted because um i had so many like good opportunities like one of my posh mates from the student paper he was like all this the stuff you're writing is funny you should enter this guardian competition for student journalists and like katlin moran Mm. and uh Connor McNicholas, yeah, from like, the enemy. They, they were the judges. Yeah, I, I and, remember this year. Yeah. yeah, and then I got into the um, finals. Everyone was so staggeringly posh at this thing. I remember coming down to London for the thing, and it was wild. I'd never even read the Guardian like before this, and then um, I got like a bit of money. I mean, that's that's good. You know, but I was that writing is... jokes. I was writing little funny jokes. And then that Connor McNicholas guy somehow got my phone number and phoned me up and said, do you want to write stuff, it was like TV stuff for The Sun? And then I got this like 10 grand scholarship and went to Sheffield because there was no way I could afford to do the post training. But as that was happening, I'd started doing stand-up and then as soon as I did stand-up, I was like, oh, fuck, this is definitely what I'm going to do. What did comedy... I you, though. I mean, you must have...
0: There was some kind of emotion you felt when you went on stage that made you go, this is it, it's not journalism.
2: Well, it was like a big unmasking in terms of how much you have to mask when you have autism and constantly concentrate on what you're saying. Explain and mask. The rules of socialising are never going to be intuitive or second nature for me. I learn them the way people learn French. And I've got good at it over years, but it takes a lot of concentration and it it makes you burnt out. How does
0: comedy and going out on stage fit into that? Because I would say, I would think that it was scary.
2: (laughs) No, because comedy um, endorses a lot of autistic traits, like a love of um, repetition. Um, Like my boyfriend at uni would say, You like to tell the same story again and again and again and that's what you're doing and stand up, just sitting on a train alone night after night to go somewhere and tell some stories for 20 minutes and then go to another place and do that. So at this point, you're starting
0: out in comedy and you're living in England for the first time. What did you make of the comfort food on offer there?
2: Oh, well, Paramos were a revelation
0: (gasps) Please explain a parmo to people. Well, because
2: the crazy thing is is there's people in the north of England that don't know what parmos are because they're so specific to Middlesbrough. Yeah, Middlesbrough. Um, But you can also get them in Newcastle and and they've gone as far south as York and Sheffield because I've had a parmo in Sheffield. Yeah. A parmo, it's a bit of breaded chicken, but they batter it out thin yeah. till it's like a pizza, a pizza base made of chicken and uh-huh. then they put sauce on the top. I can't remember if it's tomato it's or just bechamel. Yeah, it's
0: like a, to- well, it could be both. It's like a tomato and then is there a load of cream as well?
2: Yeah, and then and they then put cheese on it and then you can have pepperoni and stuff on it as a topping. And I think it's got about 5,000 calories.
0: Yeah, you've got to eat it standing up. In a mini dress. Yeah. (laughs) Like uh, when you've got out of a pub on a night in a taxi queue, that's when when it's at its best, I think.
2: But I introduced my Irish boyfriend to them and he was like, if we brought these to London, you could sell them at Borough Market.
0: You absolutely could. You absolutely could. Parmo hasn't come to London yet.
2: But if you look at how Scotch eggs became this hipster thing a few years ago, they can do the same with Parmos.
0: You gigged relentlessly for 10 years and got more and more TV jobs. You touched on it earlier, but it was only recently during the pandemic that you decided to speak to a doctor about an autism diagnosis. What prompted that?
2: I'd been too busy before um, and I thought I'm self-employed now so I can just be this weirdo and I'm not going to bother getting diagnosed. Although it, it, it it was definitely a problem it's been becoming a bit more of a problem. And even in work as well, I often would have TV producers misinterpret things that I was saying. Like I remember making, I made someone cry. He was nearly crying, this journalist. And my agent was like, what did you say? Him? And I was like, I don't know what you're on about. Mm. Um, so I'd been putting off getting diagnosed. And then the lockdown was such a massive change. I don't deal with big changes well. And I don't deal with uncertainty very well. So I ended up getting diagnosed. Even that took... must have took me about seven months to lock
0: down. So you go and you get the diagnosis. How does that feel when you get an answer?
2: It was weird because I'd always known I'd had it from when I very first read about it. But I just hate going to the GP. Um, And then when I did get diagnosed, it was like... I always... I thought I knew everything about it, about autism, and then I found out so much more during the diagnosis. Like they interviewed my mum, and she was saying all this stuff that I did as a child, where I was like, "How did you not take me sooner?" Because she was like, "Oh yeah, we used to get woken up by you punching the walls of your uh, cot, and um, things like I wouldn't, I didn't want to be held as a baby. Um, I never thought I had eye contact problems either." because that's one of the most obvious things with autism. And then during the diagnosis, the therapist said, I noticed that you're looking at me when you talk to me, but when you're trying... It was something like, she said, when I talk back to you, your eyes are moving all around the room or something. And I'd always thought it was normal that you have to really concentrate on making eye contact with someone or that you're screaming in your head whenever you're making eye contact (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I thought we all just had trouble concentrating when we do eye contact. Um, so, yeah, it was it, it really wrecked my head getting diagnosed.
0: But did it make a lot of everything coming up to that moment make more sense?
2: Y- yeah, and that's a cliche that you hear bef- before it, but it's like you you go back over everything in your life and it's like, oh, and that and that mm. as well. Even with stripping, um, I've I read this mad article about how um you get a lot more women with autism we're not supposed to say high functioning autism, but mm. that what used to be called Asperger's, you get a lot more of them in stripping because a lot of us are unemployable and we get sacked a lot. It's impossible to get Gets act in a strip club. Also, um, the conversations in strip clubs are so scripted that it's quite easy to work out what to say. After a while, the other thing is, is the, the lighting's fantastic. It's really dark, <laughs> so we don't get overstimulated. Um, so yeah, it was just every everything. Everything seemed linked to it. I love that on your podcast you're really frank about
0: life, sex, friendships. Oh, many of your best jokes are about yourself. Is there anything funny about autism?
2: Well, Actually, I have to say one of the things I've laughed the hardest at with autism is um, there was this Netflix show called Love on the Spectrum. And um, that was one of the times where I was like, I had a lot more in common with those people than I do with other people. Because there was a dating scene in that where this girl is on a speed date thing with an autistic guy they're both autistic and she's like so do you have any hobbies and he goes yes and she's like "Uh, what are your hobbies and he just says yes and she's like do you have any pets and he goes yes (laughs) you you can tell he's desperate to get away, yeah. but both of them are following the conventions of what they have been taught you're supposed to do on a date. And it makes you realise how mental the neurotypical world is where it's like, why do we sit through this? <laughs> um, so I was, I was like crying, laughing, watching this. then I tried to tell someone about, I tried to tell a non-autistic person at work about it and they were like, yes, and Love on the Spectrum is a very compassionate (laughs) programme. And it's that thing neurotypicals have to do where they're demonstratively virtue-signalling. It's insane. Being autistic throws up a lot of stuff that regular people do that is just mad." Like, like I get work phone calls all the time where people say, is now a good time to talk? And I say, yes, because I answered the phone just now. So if it wasn't, I wouldn't have answered the phone. You've been an
0: absolute joy. Thank you. Fern Brady, thank you for comfort eating with me. Thanks. <laughs> this episode of Comfort Eating was produced by Emma Roberts. The series producer is Leah Green and the executive producer is Kathy Drysdale. The music was written by Axel Cacutier. Mixing and sound design was by Sammy L. Anami. If you like Comfort Eating, please leave us a review. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And use the hashtag ComfortEatingPod to get in touch about the podcast or share your own comfort foods.
1: This is The Guardian.